Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 78 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Joe Makowitz, professor of rhetoric and professional communication at Iowa State University, and with Isabel Thompson, a uh, Emerita Professor of Technical and Professional Communication and former coordinator of the English Center at Auburn University. Their book, Talk About Writing, The Tutoring Strategies of Experienced Writing Center Tutors, was published by Routledge in 2018. This is the book's second edition. One student writer with written assignment plus one writing center tutor equals infinity. The student will bring to a writing conference another assignment every time, and even where the assignment is the same as last year's freshman writing, this particular student's working through of an answer will be unique. No two student texts are alike because no two student writers are the same. And writing center tutors know this, which is why a good tutor will run each and every conference differently uniquely, matching the aims to the text and the writer, adapting tutoring tutoring strategies to the text as it is and as it could be, and again adapting strategies to the writer, who she is or who he is, and who they want to be. Really, if you stop to think about the matter, the human combination of student-writer and writing-tutor is as complex as the linguistic combination of noun and verb. Infinity is the number of things a person can say when noun and verb meet. Infinity is likewise the number of activities in learning a person can perform when a student writer and a writing tutor meet. It's amazing, or it amazes me anyway, whenever I hear the talk between tutor and student, because what I hear is learning going on. And it amazes me that this learning is going on throughout the country, across the world, in writing centers everywhere. In writing centers where students who want to know more come to meet other students who've been trained and do know some more, 
And these two people meet and they talk about something that's written. I mean, what topic don't they cover? The meanings of common and therefore crucial words, words like freedom, discrimination, change, science, home. They cover the possibilities of thinking a thing through. For example, the possibilities for how to shape a context so that other people can arrive at your initial point of view. And from there, how to lay foundation and build up level upon level so that the people can ascend with you to another point of view with a broader horizon. In writing centers everywhere, young people and less young people are talking about amazing things. They're talking about how they think, about how to think, about what to believe, about whom to believe, about why such things and such thoughts matter, about why anything matters. Any which way you turn your ear in a writing center, you will hear the talk of learning. And I think it's a very significant point indeed, a point that reveals one pillar of the educational experience. I think it's a significant point that all this learning talk is actually talk about writing. Talk about writing, the perfect title for a book that researches writing center tutoring so that the practice can be optimized. Talk About Writing is Joe Makowitz and Isabel Thompson's book that presents us with three major findings. First, here is close delineation of a research methodology for a coding scheme in discourse analysis. Really, the author's answer to the particular interest shown in their work by readers of the first edition. Second, here is that coding scheme, which is both precise and adaptable to the research needs of other Writing Center scholars, but also to the research needs of writing fellows, of technical writers, of editors, of subject matter experts, of educators. And three, here is a demonstration of this coding scheme. In order to provide one empirically-based conclusion after another empirically-based conclusion, providing valuable evidence for those tutoring strategies that really work and why they work, and for how to develop more such strategies during tutor training. Talk about writing advances the research and writing center studies because the authors, Joe Makowitz and Isabel Thompson, use replicable, aggregable, data-supported research, RAD for short. And this book, Talk About Writing, assists the practice of writing centers because the authors, Joe Makowitz and Isabel Thompson, present result after result of what works less well and what works better in that other dimensional setting, that time and place called the Writing Center Conference, where one plus one equals infinity, where student and text plus tutor and talk equals writing. So let's begin today's episode. Joe Makowitz, Isabel Thompson, talk about writing. Hi, Joe. Hi, Isabel. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you. Hi, Daniel. <laughs> Thank you for having us. This book offers us novel findings, novel research. And um, in any field of study, that's always fascinating <laughs> and deserves attention. Um, one of the points that caught my um, attention quickly was this idea that the role of tutor talk in encouraging students by nurturing their interest in a writing task, by fostering positive beliefs and judgments about themselves, or even by promoting the transition from being able to do something and actually succeeding at it, that this tutor talk hasn't really been the focus of very much research. And in steps your book. <laughs> <laughs> 
A- absolutely. Yeah. Um, there, there's been uh, some research, and Isabel knows it much better than I do, in um, education uh, on um, how tutors and students work together, and then um, some research in applied linguistics, uh, particularly by Therese Thonis as well. Um, yeah, but not a whole lot had been done on the one-to-one uh, dialogue between uh, student writers and tutors. Um, Isabel, can you think of some other things that I'm maybe I'm missing or things that pop to your mind? One of our purposes, I think, was to bring in um, results from other disciplines that can, well, they can't be applied directly to writing centers, can at least give researchers some ideas of what's going on in other fields. Um, and that, along with the coding scheme, scheme, I think, are major contributions of the work in terms of what other researchers might use from it. And I, I'm imagining that what you're referring to there from this interdisciplinary side where you're uh, turning to other fields to enhance a writing center studies, I'm imagining that you're also referring to scaffolding. Is that right? Yes, scaffolding has been something that I've been interested in ever since I was a graduate student, and that was a very, very long time ago. Um, It comes from really well-known researchers in education, such as Jerome Bruner, and um, can get tied back up to Dewey if you really want to make that connection. And what really strikes me about this combination of scaffolding and tutor talk. And what really strikes me generally is that tutor talk has been not a focus of writing center research because, I mean, it's at the center of the writing center, isn't it? I mean, that's that's really what's going on when, when there's conferences that you walk in the room and you just hear a whole bunch of people talking. But the scaffolding, what really caught my attention was this idea that Of course, scaffolded learning achieves the completion of a task, but what it really does is it accelerates the learning process overall. And that is, I would say, probably its key element, isn't it? Yes, that's the goal. Well, the goal is actually to get someone to feel and practice the task so that the person's ability has moved forward just a little bit. And the next time he does the task, you start in a further along spot. It goes back to Bruner's spiral curriculum from the, I guess it was the 50s, right after Sputnik, where he said that um, young children can be taught a reasonably honest, simplified version of, of the same tasks that they might be taught as high school students. You just keep spiraling up. Uh, in terms of difficulty as they continue to learn. I, I think that's, as you were saying, Daniel, probably one of the biggest contributions of the book is, um, especially with Isabel's background in education, we were able to draw from educational research. And then uh, I think that's really one of the contributions is we are looking at how does learning go on in this one-to-one conversation? And 
we we also drew from some of the applied linguistics research that looked at tutoring interactions. I mentioned Therese Stonis, and I have huge respect for her work, but I think our goals were different. Um, Therese was looking at um, how these conversations come together. She's using conversation analysis to look at how a tutor and a, tu- and a student co-construct a conversation. Um, she paid um, particular um, attention to the politeness that they're using and the directness of the tutor. And I think our focus was more on like, how does learning go on in these interactions? And that's why Isabel's contribution and her background in education were so critical because we started analyzing language from the perspective of, okay, how are they, how is this construction of knowledge going on? How is expertise, you know, transferred for lack of a better word um, from one person to another? How is it co-constructed? And so that's one of the reasons, I mean, I think it's good to, to be interdisciplinary, probably for just the sake of being interdisciplinary. But I think in our case, being interdisciplinary allowed us to focus on the construction of knowledge. Yeah, that yes. that comes out in the book as well, that you yes. are using the tools of linguistics or composition studies to say something about how learning happens. And um, it's it's really quite interesting that what comes up is that learning succeeds in a in a mix as as you as you're saying joe of 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 knowledge current knowledge of the learner but that needs to be put to use in amongst other things the scaffolding process by the tutor and what i found critical also the willingness of the student or the learner to actually make the effort which is another task yeah. that's taken over then by the tutor yes that's that's a very very important task, and it's difficult to really get at empirically. Um, we have an article coming out uh, this, supposedly this summer. Uh, we just saw the manuscript that that really looks more at the student's uh, the students' responses, and then also how the tutor goes about to maintain some kind of contingency with the student, and um, it's. Most of what we're doing is just, most of what we laid out in the book is just beginning to be empirically connected with some kind of learning, possible learning. So there's a lot more work to do. Well, that's very interesting to hear that uh, there's a move to the uh, to the learner view, let's say, because we do have... The tutor view here, for the most part, I mean, of course, the entire conference, the entire Writing Center conference is taken under consideration. But what we're finally interested in and what many of the results point to is how to train the tutor and what the tutor actually is doing there. Is um, is that a fair assessment of of how the book uh, is designed? Yes, exactly. And it's one of the future research ideas that we laid out in the conclusion to bring in the, the student more. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Um, we've, in, in more recent uh, research, um, we've kind of looked more at the student's contribution and trying to look a little bit more at sort of the development of the student's knowledge 
within these interactions, um, students' contribution. We did it through looking at questions in one article that should be coming out soon. Um, and then, as Isabel mentioned, too, um, looking at uh, scaffolding uh, in, uh, with students' responses. Yeah. And it, it, what's interesting is is that um, there's quite a lot, and I want to go into that in, in, in some detail, or as much detail as we can manage here um, on the air, uh, the different stages of the conference, and also, of course, the strategies that are used. But there are a whole set to just sort of foreshadow what's coming. There are a whole set which deal with motivation. Yeah. Um, and... It would seem to me, uh, just perhaps from a theoretical perspective, that motivation is already student side. And this is one of the things that I personally took from the book when I thought about what learning is, is this idea of, okay, well, how is it that we then tap into internal motivation? How is it that we arrange incentives in a course of study or during a conference at a writing center so that that internal motivation gets let's say enhanced or activated in the first place or reactivated. And, and then, are, then there are of course, external circumstances that contribute to motivation. I, I suppose what I'm, I'm driving at is, is just that it came out so clearly for me that knowledge is merely half of the equation when it comes to learning and that this motivational side is so key. Isabel, do you want to tackle that one first? <laughs> that's that's one of the things about the about doing research on scaffolding that is so difficult. All you can say is that probably maybe this feeds into a student's motivation. And people in education are doing the same thing. They're also feeding into what are the results of a student who's extrinsically motivated as opposed to intrinsically motivated how does that relate to learning but it's also difficult to measure that um, it's more speculative we can't say that we have any hardcore results it's just what we think based on what we've observed yeah, just to, to sort of build on that, I mean, we thought it was, well, and, and educational research says it's critical to look at motivation. And that's why, um, based on that research, we developed those strategies for looking at how, for, for trying to analyze, to pinpoint, to operationalize um, how tutors can bolster students' motivation. But it seems to me anyway, that it's more difficult to try to measure or to, uh, to operationalize students' internal motivation. And part of that is just my own ignorance. I'm not an expert like Isabel is on <laughs> educational research. No. But, <laughs> um, you know, but I've, I've, we've looked at students' responses to t- tutors' questions. We've I've looked at with a graduate student uh, recently in an article on students' long terms in, um, in, in conversations with tutors. And, you know, always the question lingering for me is, and I don't have an answer for it, is like, why do some students, why are they so motivated to 
to respond to tutors, to initiate topics, to talk at length in long turns, a talk. And I mean, it's just, it's, I, I don't really have a great answer for that. I, I, um, some students, you see that when a tutor asks a question, they'll take it and they'll even add to what the tutor was talking about. Um, you know, so that, that for me is still sort of an, an unknown. Um, but I think one thing that we did in the book was to be able to say like, okay, here's how you can operationalize how student, how tutors can contribute to students' motivation to continue, um, to continue their efforts. And at least that gives a way to sort of measure tutors' contribution, and then that can improve tutor training. But the student side, I think you put your finger on it, Daniel, is you know, we, we're just starting to kind of look more at what students are doing. Um, and the, yeah, I'll, I'll quit. There. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, that's certainly what, <laughs> that's certainly what comes out in the book. And I think you guys have started at the right place with the um, tutor him or herself, because if we're thinking about, you know, what motivates any learner, right. Just as generally as possible, even outside the writing center, then I mean, my first thought goes immediately to the teacher and, you know, the counterpart of the teacher, there's, uh, this is not a one-to-one uh, analogy, but the counterpart of the teacher in this scenario is, of course, the tutor. And I mean, th- it's true. <laughs> I mean, you both know, uh, and our, many of our listeners will also know that, you know, how do you measure effectiveness of a teacher, right? Or of teaching? I mean, these th- there's so many things that you can't necessarily... M- you know, put a number next to, but but you do in your book uh, also call attention to some of the things that really matter. For example, when you talk about what it is that really makes a tutor, and this is part also of your data selection, because I mean, you you did choose ten conferences um, on their effectiveness, so I would imagine that meant other conferences got left out, or you went over them, perhaps. Um, but you talk about what you know, a tutor is. You tell us that this person is more knowledgeable about writing than the 2T, uh, the learner, that they understand. And I mean, these are some of the key factors, I would say. Understand how people learn. They know how to work collaboratively. They know how to diagnose as things are going on, what's working and what's not. I mean, these are all sort of the, the measures of a good teacher, right? Yes, and they're what the skills you're talking about, including the subject matter expertise, are part of tutor training. So they've all been, before they start working with students, they've all been given conferences. We, we have taken the conferences apart and talked about what potentially seems effective and how the student responds to that. And we've talked about the types of assignments we're most likely to see, the larger writing centers probably, who, who serve a whole university, or even further than that, um, probably have a lot of trouble with that. But the writing center that, that I was directing had uh, served only students in freshman comp and rural lit, the required English courses. So we could talk in a great deal of detail about what we would expect to see from students. 
and um, they they do learn to work together. The value of that, they our tutors come in. They're really nice kids, and getting along with the with appealing to the students that they work with um, seems to come pretty natural to them. Yeah, and I, I mean this this does seem to be. Um sort of the uniqueness. Um, I brought up uniqueness in, in, in my intro, but I brought it up for a reason. This does seem to be what's unique about the Writing Center Conference or even just a writing center as a construct and an institution on campus of any university at all is, is that it's kind of a motivating place and it attracts motivated people, I would say. Um, one thing that springs to mind, and 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 um, this comes up uh, at different points uh, indirectly in the book, is is that in the writing center you're dealing with, uh, well, it comes up directly when you talk about motivation that the writing task is something that the person values or is interested in, and that seems to be to be one of the distinguishing characteristics of the work that's done on communication and writing centers is that it's on authentic work. This isn't something that's been given as an exercise by the person who's working on the writing or the communication, whatever it might be, with the learner. This is from outside sources. So, you know, the person at the writing center, the tutor, isn't here being, you know, isn't constructing any sort of an exercise to see how well the person can, you know, write certain kinds of sentences or whatever, right? This is a real world activity. I mean, of course, we need to then maybe ask, not all assignments are created equal, but it, but the, the essential situation of the institution writing center makes its work always authentic. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. Um, <laughs> I like that idea of uh, that 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 students are are motivated. I think. Well, first off, yes, the writing center benefits, I think, from the fact that the tutor isn't the one giving the assignment. So the student brings, you know, some piece of writing to the writing center, the tutor doesn't have that sort of, um, feel any sort of ownership over the assignment, you know, the tutor didn't write the assignment. So that I think is definitely a benefit. Um, I think there's two things that you that you brought up, Daniel, in your in your question is, one is this idea of is the student motivated to go to the writing center, and you're I think it's true that a lot of students are motivated. Uh, some of the clients that come to a writing center are intrinsically motivated to improve their learning, and they're there because they they see this as an extra resource that's available to them. They understand that when they graduate, there aren't writing centers where people are going to read their work for free and give them feedback on it and help them learn some of the things that they need to learn about writing. So you definitely have those sorts of student writers. Um, but of course, you have student writers who are not motivated to be there. Um, a lot of times, it's probably becoming less common now, but it used to be pretty common that teachers would just simply assign students to have to go to a writing center. So things that a teacher couldn't handle or didn't have time to um, work with a student on one-to-one in class or in an office hour, students were made to go to a writing center. Um, so. 
you definitely have that sort of dynamic going on as well. So there's that tutor training coming into play, you know, probably when you're working with those motivated students, you know, life's a little bit easier because they want to be there and they value what they're getting, but not everybody has that sort of mindset going into a writing center. So part of what tutors learn in their training is how to be motivational. And those are some of the strategies that we analyzed, like, you know, giving praise, um, using humor, and those sorts of things can make, um, those sorts of strategies can can help um, a student, you know, co- conquer or at least mitigate frustration with, with a task. Um, and then I think just, I'll try to keep this short, but your, your comment also brought up for me this idea of what sort of knowledge do tutors have? What do they learn to do? And I think in a writing center, like the one Isabel was running, you know, tutors are going to learn how to interact with students. They're going to analyze a lot of conversations. They're going to be observed on their first um, sessions that they that they complete with students, um, and they're going to learn strategies for interacting. But and and but and um, I think another aspect of research on writing centers is looking at okay, what sorts, if any, subject matter expertise. Or, or genre expertise um, should tutors have, if any, you know, if any, about uh, the subjects that they're going to be uh, tutoring writers in. So we can talk more about that. But yeah, I think that research is sort of just beginning to look at what other sorts of expertise should or could tutors have, say in science or engineering or something like that. And we, we have to be honest with ourselves as well. Most of the students, I would suspect, I've never asked this question, but I suspect that most of the students who come to the writing center are motivated by extrinsic things like getting a good grade. Um, and it's really hard to get past that. They're given the task by the teacher, so it's not necessarily a task that they are interested in, but they are interested in doing what the teacher wants so that they can get a good grade on that. Now, that's not true for all of the students. Some of the students that I've worked with are really very motivated to become better writers, especially uh, second language students. But they're, they're an, an extrinsic motivation can lead to learning. It's just, we don't like to think about it that much. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that has its place. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with someone being extrinsically motivated. The, the, the point is, is, is just as you say, Isabel, at some point, an internal component, at least. I mean, I think all of us are going to have to admit that we have a, a mix in motivation internally and externally, <laughs> intrinsically and extrinsically, but that that mix needs to be brought to different levels for different tasks. To be less abstract, what I'm trying to say is if you're a biologist and you move into postgrad work or you become a postdoc even and you're past your PhD, it's not going to be enough for you to be trying to you know, fulfill the wishes of your PI. You have to understand the conversation of your discipline and be doing the research because you live and breathe it. Yes, 
Yes. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. And and that kind of gets to the range of clients or, you know, student writers that most writing centers see. You know, you work from with students everywhere from first year composition um, to PhD candidates working on dissertations in in most writing centers. So they're definitely tutors are definitely going to need to practice a, a, a range uh, using a range of strategies, and they'll definitely see a a, a, a wide spectrum of of motivation across the students that they work with. The other thing about the writing center that seems to me besides the tutors, that seems to me to sort of, and as I was saying, that sort of authenticness that I see in it, that seems to bring natural motivation. It came out in the transcripts. That's one of the things I would like to draw attention to in the book is is that there are so many transcripts of actual conversations going on. So if you've never happened to have stood in a writing center, my listeners, <laughs> then it will almost be as if <laughs> um, some of these conversations go at great length and we get to really get a sense on how the tutoring actually plays out, which, which I I found um, fantastic, but it showed me also this other aspect that I'm talking about, the enjoyment that goes on. This is what I was trying to pick up in my um, intro when I was saying that it's just kind of amazing, you know, what these people, these students, you know, I mean, they're both students in all these cases are talking about, you know, you think like, um, this is where I think what the success, the recipe of success here is that you move in a writing center outside of the area of typical instruction and move more to something that is like scaffolding or, uh, Joe, to pick up your last book, something that's like apprenticeship in the trades. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. You go ahead, Isabel. <laughs> well, I think one thing that um, that I have to warn the tutors about is is that they have the teacher almost always because it's usually an assignment. It can be a resume or something like that that has another, a, a non-teacher audience. But um, most of the time there's going to be a teacher involved in this situation who is given the assignment. And the tutor needs to be very respectful of that teacher because most of the time the tutor considers him or herself the student's friend, the, not friend exactly, but is focused on the two, on the student's needs um, exclusively. So it's kind of, in some ways, like like having your your best friend there who is going to support you no matter what, because that's how the tutors sort of handle things. Although we discourage them from establishing real friendships with the students. That's, that's not a good thing to do, but it's still, it's, she's an, the tutor is an advocate mm -hmm. for the student to himself in many ways. Yeah. Student, I think tutors are, you know, peers um, and they can be friendly with students. Uh, but like Isabel was saying, one of the things I think um, writing center directors caution against is uh, critiquing assignments 
because I think it, it it's really easy to do that. You know, after you've seen a lot of assignments, you know what's going, what is written well, what actually um, facilitates scaffolded learning, what walks through students through what they should be thinking about for a particular assignment, and you know, all assignments are not created equally, so. Um, it can be pretty, it can be a little dicey when tutors, um, you know, t- tutors sort of take the side of the, of the student in, in that let's put the, the teacher um, on the defense, right? Um, it, it, it's one maybe perhaps easy path to solidarity with the student, but it's one definitely that writing center directors would discourage. I mean, it's fine to talk amongst yourselves as tutors about which assignments you think are great and which aren't, but um, definitely um, not with students. But that kind of gets, it's an interesting point, Daniel, I think in that, you know, there are different ways to build solidarity um, with students to build rapport and motivational strategies like the ones we're outlining in the book, they do that. They, they help build students' motivation. They also can help build this relationship of a collegial relationship between a tutor and a student. But your comment makes me think too, oh yeah, there are ways that you could build solidarity that aren't beneficial to learning or beneficial to the writing center itself. And, and that's one of them, definitely, just to, to start of um, critique uh, the teachers, too. Yeah. And I think that it is a potential scenario, probably a very actual real scenario that's happened plenty of times. This, as you were saying, Isabel, this friendliness or even friends between, you know, student and tutor. These people tend to be about also the same age and are going through many of the same things. Uh, The setup of a conference where one person is seeking help from another and they're both looking at it a bit, as you're saying, Joe, from the student perspective, right? That's inviting to do that. That solidarity that might build up. And it's also, though that this can be a problem is 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 a sign of what's really going on in a conference in my opinion i mean one of these things also has a technical name that you've you 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 explore in your book this intersubjectivity that needs to first occur for any you know conference to even come off for for learning to be possible and it it made me think this is one last <laughs> perhaps slightly abstract view i would like to just broach with you before we do indeed head into some of these uh, writing strategies which you've explored at length um but it does seem to be that the writing center also distinguishes itself in that way because it shows us let me back up one step in writing studies there's always been this concern to equate you know good writing with anything about the person yeah that they can think clearly that they're a you know, better at a subject or anything like that, um, because writing is for everyone process. And 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 that is indeed a valid point. But I, I wonder if what we're learning in the Writing Center Conference is that it's it's not necessarily even that you get better at writing. I mean, you say at one point in your book, and this this may be laugh out loud, is that no one ever masters writing or the process of improving at writing never ends, which, which, which anyone who's spent some time at writing knows. <laughs> so I, I get the sense that, that the writing center gives us, the writing center conference, the tutor and the student gives us a view as to what really is happening. And it would seem to me to be some element of self-awareness or self-knowledge that is actually at work here. Because you're 
in you're you're in the tutoring experience. You're allowing two people to learn something about themselves. They're 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 getting very close to each other on this intellectual problem solving level, and they're seeing things about themselves. And I would imagine that that's why motivation is such a key point here, and that's why this 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 you know. It, it's it's likely that the uh, solidarity is going to be very high between them because they they're sharing in this um, in this task of of the conference and it would appear that the real you know uh, the classic um, north uh, uh, point that you know the writing center is there not to improve writing but to improve writers that 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 might be what it is is is, is this uh, awareness of self knowledge not knowledge about anything else. I, I, I think that's true. I think there's, um, you know, the more I think about writing center interactions and write books about it, you know, the more I think that what the tutor's value is in sort of showing students a, a thinking process, an, 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 an analysis process about writing, about, you know, self-questioning any sort of text, your relationship to the text, what you know about it, sort of modeling this process. And the the different strategies that we outline, they're different ways of getting at that. So I think the big value is they're learning this process of uh, and, and seeing it modeled of questioning a text. Like, what do you expect the audience to know about this? What do you have to say explicitly? What sort of background needs to be said? What needs to be defined? And they see a tutor doing that and asking those questions, and they learn how to self-question themselves. And so part of what the tutor's doing through motivation is giving motivation for this sort of interaction, this questioning, this modeling to go on. And of course, you, you brought up intersubjectivity, and that's part of, of understanding like what the task is. Do we have a shared understanding of what we're supposed to be constructing here um, in this text in the first place? So I think just to bring this up again, you know, it's if that's the real, if that's the main value of tutors, it is this pro- of showing this process, engaging and scaffolding them in this process, then maybe it's less of a concern what sort of knowledge they or subject matter knowledge they bring to an interaction, as long as they can do this scaffolding of the process of investigating or interrogating a text. Um, whether it's written or oral or whatever it is, you know, or signed. I have to yeah. say, I, I totally agree with that um, point of view there, Joe. Uh, and Isabel, I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say on on, on the question of, um, because this also comes up in the case study in your book, um, where we have basically a writing in the disciplines program that we get a you know snapshot of, of one conference and there's somebody who's more familiar with the subject matter. Um, this idea of, okay, so what is it that the, for lack of a better word, I'll say the communication expert has to offer the disciplinary expert? And do the two need to actually be the same person? Um, that's been an, an, an issue for some speculation in writing center work. Not, well, a little bit of empirical research, but a lot of early speculation. And the early days, what we now call Writing Center lore, um, 
the idea of a person being a subject matter expert was negative because you were so not supposed to, you're supposed to be a peer. And my experience is that doesn't work very well, that the tutor has to have expertise in what he or she is tutoring in, even if it's just like if a student comes in for a whirlit with a whirlit paper, it doesn't necessarily matter whether the tutor has read the specific work the student is writing about. It matters that that the tutor um, understands how to do a critique of a piece of literature, how to write about it, what vocabulary to use, the conventions of the field, and is therefore able to form these scaffold questions. So scaffolding is an expert-novice relationship. So um, the tutor has to have expertise. That's my opinion. And I know that Joe Makowitz has written an article yeah. about this. <laughs> I think... Where I she... Um, Go ahead, Joe. No, no, no. It's you your continue. Article. I'm sorry. I cut you off. You go as well. No, no. It's your article. You talk about oh, it. No, I, I wasn't going to talk about the article. I was just going to just piggyback on what you were saying. You know, I said that I think that this process, this scaffolding process, this questioning of, of modeling this behavior, I think, you know, that's one aspect. And I think an open question is, you know, what in what what sort of knowledge should the tutor have in order to best, you know, be able to engage in this process? You know, one, it, 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 the tutor needs to have some expertise. So there's this nebulous, you know, thing like I know writing, you know, but no one, you don't know writing like in the abstract, you might know, uh, you know, comma rules or rule how to use a semicolon or something like that. But it's really being understanding the sort of dis disciplinary conventions, the conversations going on. And so, uh, you know, you want tutors to have that knowledge of how to construct these conversations, the strategies to use, but they also need to know the sort of conventions going on in disciplines. And I think, or at least recognize when they don't know them, you know? So, and I think that's why so many tutors, they can have trouble when they hit a discipline that they're not familiar with and they don't understand what are the components of a lab report um, or, you know, whatever sort of genre it may be. So it's this whole like nebula of knowledge. And the, 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 the big question is, you know, are tutors supposed to have you know, knowledge in science and engineering and, you know, uh, kinesiology or, you know, whatever field it is that they're, and, and it seems like a lot to ask of someone. So you hope that they learn some of the conventions as they gain an expertise. And that's why expert tutors, you know, that's who we were studying, you know, ones who really had some of that knowledge of the conventions that students' assignments fell into. So they were really prepared to talk to these students as experts in commas, but also experts in the kind of disciplinary conversations and the genres in that. Um, 
Yeah, those are the key words, in my opinion, just as Isabel was saying as yeah. well, the, the, the conversations going on and, and the tenor of those conversations mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and, and the handling of those conversations, but in particular, the, the, the text types. But I would say it's the text type that matters and all that the text type stands for, which is those things that we were just saying, the conversation and the institutions behind them. So, for example, again, biology, I it's my sort of go-to example. <laughs> um, you know, what is the thinking during lab processes of experiments that gets picked up in a methods section and why is it picked up that way? And is it being recorded or used for other purposes or is part of the purpose recording and the other justifying or increasing credibility? The list goes on. I, th- I think the the point of my uh, illustration here is just to get a sense more concretely of what are these institutions, what are these text types, what are these registers, and so on. But I would say it's that that the writing consultant on a more general level even now, not just the tutors, needs to know, and not necessarily the biology itself. I don't think that that is required. Um, I think because essentially... Uh, another interview that I've had here on the show, um, mentoring and co-writing for research publication purposes by Pascal Matza, he shows actual, you know, professors in the sciences who are expert at communication, you know, expert at communicating their results. They, they, they've published, you know, 100 articles and upwards, so they know what they're doing. And what they kind of do is a little bit like what tutors do with their PhDs. However, what they lack, so in other words, what they're, what they're doing is they're kind of apprenticing. They're showing. They say, don't do it like that, do it like this, and so on. But what they lack and what the tutors have is an explicit awareness of how communication works. So in other words, it's always only indirect that these um, actual faculty members are able to help somebody you know, write their first articles because they can't actually, let's say they they. They can give you the sort of text that should come out, but they can't talk about the communication process that produces that text. That's right. They know it implicitly. Yeah, because they've done it. Right. I'm sorry, Isabel. You go. And I would say that's what. Yeah, and I think that's what we bring to the table. Right. That's 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 what I would say. Yeah. One of the things that Joe found in this article that I keep referring to is that um, this particular. One of the, she had several tutors. Um, most of them had English backgrounds. One of them had been a technical communicator for several years. And the writing, the, the people they were tutoring were engineers. So what happens when you don't know anything about a discipline is that you resort to things that you do know, which means that these tutors were spending, the English background tutors were spending a whole lot of time on proofreading, which they could do, but they couldn't go, as you have been saying, to the disciplinary conventions of the field because they didn't know them. But they could be taught them. That's oh, my yes. point. They could be taught them, but they didn't. But they don't come that way. <laughs> right, right, and that's and that's the thing that I'm saying. I think that those are the tutors that we could send into a writing in the disciplines program. Those are the tutors who could be actually helping, you know, even postdocs get their first articles out because they know communication explicitly, and they can adapt that knowledge to other fields conventions. 
100%. You know, I think that's, that's where we, where we're probably going to end up because it's too much to ask that everybody understand biology and kinesiology and what have you, you know, we can't be disciplinary experts. I think I speculate that it would be helpful if you did know biology and could and understood had a deep understanding of what the client or the student was was talking about and could and could uh, give suggestions at a content level um but i don't think it's necessary and i certainly don't think it's practical i think that you have to be able to look at something and and pose the question to a student for example is is this well explicated enough for your audience? Are they going to understand what you mean by this term? If not, I think you need to provide a parenthetical definition and to explain the connection between these two processes more. And you can do that without truly understanding what those processes are or what the term that needs to be defined is. So I definitely, I agree with that. And I think we need more research in empirical research on um, how how that can be done and and certainly on training programs for those kind of students I think these things are going on now more than they than they were before um, but it not not a ton <laughs> not a ton yeah. Okay, uh, Isabel, if, if you want mm-hmm. to say something that I, I do, it is minute 50 of our interview, and I have more to say about this topic of um, expertise in subject matter and expertise in communication. But I think it's high time that we turn to some of the um, tutoring strategies in the book, which are laid out in great detail and the um, coding scheme that you developed and able to give us the precision with which to talk about a writing center conference. I mean, this is this is really the entire heart of the whole project. You're able to break down the stages of a conference into three, opening, teaching, and closing. You're able to give us um, broad categories of, of strategy, instruction, um, and scaffolding, scaffolding of two types, the cognitive and also the motivational, which we briefly um, mentioned. I suppose the, the best way to enter into this would be, I mean, both of you are coming from uh, solid research backgrounds. Both of you have um, experience at writing centers. What was some of the findings in these strategies that you hadn't really quite had on your radar? Or what was it that through the coding you were noticing Okay, so that is why I always noticed that sort of a tutor was better or worse or something like that. Yeah, what, what, what was this able to make explicit for you? Isabel, did you want to? <laughs> Gosh, that's such a big question. It's a good question. Um, yeah. Um, I think, well, of course, what the coding did was give us names for things so that we could zero in and look more carefully at, at what the tutors were doing. And, uh, and of course we based our coding scheme on one that someone else had already developed. Um, and this person was uh, doing research on literacy tutors, um, adult literacy tutors. And there is some similarity, but it is a much more restricted 
the responses are much more restricted. And we sort of opened up that scale and then started really looking at what tutors do. And I was astounded at how much pumping they did, which is exactly what they needed to do. It's the basis of scaffolding. But before I even identified that well enough to sort of teach it in the the training sessions we had, they were still doing an awful lot of it. Could could you, Isabel, just in brief, for listeners' sake, uh, uh, tell us what pumping is? Uh, pumping is when, that's true scaffolding. It's when the tutor asks the student a question about something that relates to the text. And it can be as simple as, uh, do you want, uh, well, that would be a yes or no question. Well, like why, did you put this comma, why did you put this comma mm-hmm. here? to what do you think is the main idea of this essay you're writing about? It can be big or it can be small. Um, But the idea is to stimulate the the student. It's a pulling from what the student already knows and a focusing from what the student already knows. And it has the added Um, benefit of increasing interactivity within within the conference. And that's you know, one of the main goals I think a tutor has is to get the students talking and participating and contributing ideas. So pumping questions, they, as Isabel said, they come across a, a, a range they can um, of, of the kind of responses that they elicit. But open questions like, you know, what did you mean with this first sentence? You know, that is an open question that gets a student um, talking, but also thinking out loud, you know, about what it is they did mean <laughs> in that in that first sentence and what were they trying to say. And that way you get interactivity going. So like Isabel, I was pretty surprised at how many of these pumping questions were going on. It was the um, most frequent um, cognitive scaffolding strategy that we found um, across the across the conferences. So, yeah, and and I don't know, Daniel. Do you want us to talk a little bit in brief about the three like main categories that we were? That that at? would be fantastic. Um, definitely to just give us an overview, and also with the um, just as you were mentioning there, um, Joe, the, the frequencies, so we get a sense yeah. of what's predominantly happening in these writing center conferences. Well, the easiest one, so I'll take it, <laughs> is the main category of instruction, and so there are, you know, we talk about three different strategy strategies in instruction. I play with this a little bit when I did my welding book. And I, you know, I shifted one strategy into this category. And um, uh, but for the for the sake of like writing center conferences, you know, instruction consists of direction. You know, a telling is the word we use. Telling a student what to do, or um, like put a comma here. I just use commas because they're easy. Um, suggesting is a more indirect approach where you would say something like, um, you know, maybe you should have a comma here, or perhaps there ought to be a comma here, something like that, where the language is a little bit more indirect. It's it's stated as a possibility instead of an obligation. 
Um, and then we put together exemplifying and explaining into one code. We talk in the methods, I think in the methods, about how, you know, perhaps if somebody were using this uh, this scheme, this coding scheme, you know, maybe they would break those apart. But um, we put them together. So a lot of times you'll see a, either a, a telling strategy and a suggesting strategy paired up with an explanation. And that makes sense because the tutor would be, you know, telling some someone about, you know, put the comma there, but then explaining why, you know, perhaps, you know, there's two independent clauses and a, you know, a, a conjunction between them. So you need to have a comma there, you know, so there's an explanation afterwards. Um, I'll let Isabel take on the cognitive scaffolding strategy. <laughs> before, before we... Yeah. <laughs> Before we leave yeah. instruction, though, there is one comment I'd like to make, because one of your conclusions is quite interesting on that last category there, the explaining, exemplifying, which takes up about 20% of the time, 15 to 20%, um, just to give listeners a sense of how often. It happens a little bit less than I thought, and that was indeed one of your conclusions, that maybe it would be valuable if it was happening more, but you offer also two interesting perspectives as to why that might not be. A, it takes time. And B, students aren't always interested. <laughs> this this gets back to motivations, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I'll, I'll be quiet here, though, and let Isabel comment on that. <laughs> well, just to add on to what Daniel was just saying, we had one conference in the group, and the tutor was a graduate student. I think he was a PhD student. And the, the uh, student in this instance was this very audacious young woman and he would and she like many students do wanted him to help with proofreading well every just about every time that he wanted to that he found a comma missing or something like that he had to stop and explain the rule to her and she would actually cut him off sometimes um and leading back to, well, what goes here? <laughs> and, uh, they, students don't come for lengthy explanations, even though they might benefit from them if, if they would listen more carefully. Uh, but anyway, am I supposed to talk about uh, company now? <laughs> <laughs> well, would you like to? <laughs> um, no. Um, uh, yes. Well, we have cognitive scaffolding, and, and I can just give a very brief overview, just just so listeners have an orientation. We have motivational scaffolding. Those would be two major scaffolding um, sort of. Uh, areas that are covered in the study. Um, and in them, the dominant uh, strategies are, as we've just mentioned, pumping occurs more than half of the time in, in cognitive uh, scaffolding. Reading aloud, I found interesting, occurs about a quarter of the time. So just in those two strategies, you have quite a lot covered. And down in motivational, again, just as a, just for the sake of overview, we've got showing concern being, again, a dominant strategy occurring about half the time. And again, praise being about a quarter of, of tutor's time um, in interaction with the students. So that's just a quick overview. Please, either of you or both of you comment um, on those or other strategies that occur to you that, that need some explaining or filling in, sure. if you like. Um, I, I think one of the things that we try to explicate uh, a little bit when we were talking about uh, pumping questions, you know, not every question is a pumping question or aimed at uh, students' 
um, at, at scaffolding students learning. So that's one consideration to make when you're thinking about, okay, training tutors to use this sort of question to get students to think about what did you mean here? or Why did you say it that way? Um, so, I mean, questions happen all the time in a writing center for, you know, we've done an article looking at like, you know, for instance, conversation control questions where, you know, you're simply, your your questions focused on the conversation itself or um, questions about, like, for instance, uh, a student might ask, you know, like, can I go run to the bathroom? <laughs> you know, that's, you know, we're not talking about pumping questions in that case. So that's like the first consideration, I think. But then, like you were, we were saying, pumping questions happened really often. Um, maybe Isabel would want to say something about the reading aloud, which was really an interesting strategy. And one, maybe that surprised us a little. We found that to be quite powerful. And we've looked at it in, in several other articles as well. Um, the, the questions, I, th- I think it's fairly commonly used. It's not our top four, but it's, it's fairly common. And you can, it's, it's a strategy that almost anybody can use. The tutors don't necessarily have to have a whole lot of expertise uh, about conventions in a discipline to read aloud from a student's text. And students are pretty good about being able to pick up problems when somebody else reads their text aloud. And besides picking up problems, it, the reading the text aloud can also work as sort of a springboard to stimulate thinking of other ideas. Um, in the field, there's discussion about whether the tutor should read aloud the student's paper or the student should read aloud his own paper. Um, in the examples we have in the book, it's the tutor reading aloud. Yeah, there's a I mean, I think we were really we were really interested in, you know, students responses to tutors reading aloud. Um, you know, whether they focus on sort of micro level issues like punctuation or whether they're able to look more broadly at, say, what needs further explanation or what um, like more on a syntactic level, what doesn't sound quite right. And as Isabel was mentioned, yeah, there's there's research that kind of looks at, you know, what happens when not not a whole lot, though, let me say that first on like what happens when the tutor reads versus when the student reads. And I don't know, I, I, I don't think I'm super steeped in that. And it's certainly been a while since I was in the literature, but it seemed to me at the time we were writing the book that um, it would, it's better for me when I think when the tutor reads aloud, um, I think this is particularly true when you have an, when you have L2 students and uh, I think just the whole reading process, if anyone who's tried to learn a language as an adult will know that, you know, just reading out loud is a cognitive load in and of itself, you know, in another language. So to expect somebody to engage in that process, and of course, this all depends on the level of the language learning, you know, and, but um, I, I'm just talking in generalities here that I think it, we saw it, it was pretty helpful when the tutors uh, read aloud because it just opened up a range of possibilities for students' response. Of course, it's up to the tutors if students are, you know, if they need to be focused on other uh, 
more broader ideas than punctuation, you know, for the tutor to bring it back to that, to talk more about, you know, what's, what are we doing at a genre or content level? Um, but it is, it can be useful for, for the opportunities it raises for interactivity. It would, it would seem to be because I mean, it's also one of those classic pieces of advices, which advice, which, which also works. And that is read your own work aloud. So if you're in the scenario where you've got somebody who's willing to help you, um, you know, we all know our voices sound differently to the world than they sound in our heads. So it would be nice if somebody else would pick up our voice off the page and, and, and give it back to us, you know, uh, hear it in another voice. Uh, and, and, and what I really liked about uh, the study on that point of reading aloud is, is a few of your um, conclusions. First off, it has more potential than just the sentence to sentence um, kind of work that most people have considered it to be. I think um, in one of the conferences, it turns out to be um, a method that's used and reused so that the thesis can be questioned. So step by step, the logic of what's coming up in each sentence is pointing again and again back to in a paper where the thesis hadn't really been entirely clarified. So so I mean, it, 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 as as with so much, you know, writing center law, be, better unpack it, better experiment with it, tech, test it. Um, I, I think one of the other things that really, really impressed me is about how much work is going on with these, you know, skilled tutors. How much they're actually doing. I mean, you give, for instance, the mind blowing figure that inside of a minute they usually switch between at least three strategies. And that to me was like, wow, you know, I mean, it's, you know, to be a good tutor is clearly more than just having the strategies off. It's knowing how to combine them. Yes, that was one thing that struck me. Not, I'm not a linguist. So I was amazed at how much could be packed into a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I just I completely agree. I, I was I remember being surprised at that too. Um, you know, I, I coming at it from a linguistic perspective, one can look at one can. Why well, sounds very formal? I mean, you can look at um, any sort of conversation uh, as an accomplishment. You know, the way that we are able to to uh, intuit what when others are going to stop talking and to take a turn at talk. I mean, particularly when we can see each other. Um, and in that itself, in, in a conversation in itself is quite an accomplishment when you pick it apart and you look at intonation and how I know that you're going to stop your turn and how I know to back channel to say, mm-hmm and uh-huh, when you're talking to encourage you to maintain the floor. And so there's all of that whole level going on that we all accomplish every day. And I, that's the beauty of like work somebody like Therese Thonis who can, you know, look at the conversation, um, do conversation analysis. Uh, but it, what we were doing too was looking at the added accomplishment of pedagogical talk and how that can create learning. And so there's not only the linguistic accomplishment going on, but there's also this whole educational accomplishment going on. And like you said, yeah. Within a minute, the, the the tutor can switch among these strategies, and I think what the training does is teach them ways that these strategies often can effectively pair together. 
um, effectively meaning like in, increased learning, uh, the students learning of how to question themselves and engage in this process of interrogating a text. Sorry, long answer to a simple question. (laughs) No, uh, (laughs) very interesting answer. And it gets me also to the point of uh, the training suggestions that you make throughout the book. Um, And of course, the beauty of these is that they're so evidence-based. I mean, they, they logically flow out of your data. So we can really... You know, with a future study, with other studies, with a, a writing center director's own observation, you know, make tests as to see to see whether or not you know something should be adapted here, changed, um, applied differently, or if this method should just be taken over as as you've offered it. I mean, that's the the wonderful bit about what you've done is that we've got some objective things to fall back on. Um, I. I, I think maybe one of the <laughs> points that I would like to draw a bit of attention to in all of this, uh, all of these different strategies, is in the motivational scaffolding. And there we have very minor strategies of showing optimism or using humor. And I I found this interesting because it, it the concern was the riskiness involved in humor, um, that it go off topic, that it be offensive, that it not be understood merely. I mean, there's, there are, I mean, anyone who's, you know, cracked a joke in the room stayed silent. <laughs> I think they know, you know, what risks we're talking about here amongst others that might be worse, but used correctly. I thought, wow, there are some major benefits here and it doesn't have to be humor as in, you know, to fill in nationalities, walk into a bar, not that kind of humor, clearly. It means, you know, just just noticing the lighthearted side of things. You, you, you guys wrote, and this is one of the sentences I underlined, the writing process need not be joyless. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye. Um, But indeed, there are some major benefits that are uh, tied to this, encouraging continued effort, building rapport, you know, the facilitating of learning through unexpected instances of humor or humor that happens to be relevant to the task in some way. So it can't be studied. It has to be sort of a mindset and approach, I would say. Yes. I thought that the humor, the self-deprecating humor, um, which I think we may have seen more frequently in less good conferences sometimes, was particularly effective, an effective way of working with students. There's one instance where the tutor is writing notes for the students and she hits the word consequences. And then she looks up and she says, I can't spell consequences. And they all laugh. And I thought that that showed the student, too, that a lot of people can't spell words. Really smart people can't spell words, that you don't have to know everything in order to be a good writer. And so I enjoyed the humor segments. Yeah, I think, Daniel, you you put your finger on it. You know, it's this idea of, um, you know, I'll go ahead and use the word joy, like you did too. You know, I think students probably aren't always entering the writing center with this feeling, but the fact that, you know, uh, this process that you're learning, you know, there's, there's real 
power and beauty in it when you are able to think about what you mean and to express it the way you want to express it. Um, and right, it certainly doesn't have to be joyless. And I think, you know, one of the things that tutors do is reflect that with a, with a lightheartedness, sometimes a little bit of self-deprecation that shows we're not all perfect. We're all learners, you know, on this journey. So, and I think that's, it's really great when it comes from, and that's one of the beauties of having peers in a writing center where the students can do that and show like, you know, I'm like you in a lot of ways. And um, this doesn't have to be a grave process. (laughs) I'm not going to, you know, portray myself because those people are never funny as a funny guy. (laughs) But I I, I find that, you know, in uh, a conference situation, it's almost an endless source of possible jokes or lightheartedness when you think about how hard writing is for everyone. Yeah. And, and, And it's something I always just try to turn to good effect in the sense of, you know, these are the things you need to do if you're wrapping up a session and, and, and make sure you remember that and also remember that it's not going to be easy. You know, <laughs> just just that kind of thing. Well, some, like some of the comments that you make, yeah, the, the writing process never ends. So, you know, I mean, just uh, 100%. we're all in the same boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're all in the same um, boat no matter how experienced you are. I, I mean, I'm just I like to tell students, like sometimes I show them the screenshot of the number of revisions for an article you know, there's 22 versions of the paper or the, you know, the manuscript. And I say, you know, and I've been doing this a long time, <laughs> but right. Right. Know. Yeah. And that's, but, th- but that exactly, that exactly is what I find highly motivating for people because, you know, you transparency just tends to work that way. I find, you know, I mean, because it's, it's often things that aren't talked about, you know, the same is true in subject knowledge areas where, you know, the English professor or the biology professor, you know, actually say, yeah, and it took me three years to actually get my head around this theory, but now that I get it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, for a student, that's like, you just think, ah, okay. Yeah. I'm not alone. No, 100%. Sort of going back to this joy again, it's not really joy, but one thing I always observed, I think from, just about every tutor that I ever worked with is that they really enjoy the work. They like talking to the students. They like helping the students. They're they're smiling. And I think that's that's motivational for the students as well. The opposite would certainly be deadly for the students. Yeah, I mean, this brings us back around to this topic that we've been exploring here again and again of what is it that, you know, the communication expert brings to the subject matter expert. And I would also say it is an enthusiasm for communication. I mean, you know, just, just to talk about STEM fields, for example, there are people who enjoy writing up their research there, no doubt about it. Yeah. And they're really good at it, but they're not in the majority. And if you bring somebody in who, you know, cares about STEM, has read up about STEM and also loves communication, I think you have a better probability that they're going to be catching. They're going to be contagious. They're going to be able to show something, somebody about communication things that they never thought. Um, just to close out, uh, you at the end of the book talk about future research, and it was a very interesting point about 
and this would bring us to the student side of things, measuring the quality of student revisions and the intricacies and the difficulties methodologically of capturing that. Um, I wonder if you could maybe just say a word or two about uh, about that topic. Oh, Lordy. I can say many words. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Isabel, do you want to go first? I've, I've, I feel like I've... Well, I'll, just, I'll be the one to say that that's very, very difficult to do. <laughs> um, and it's been... A, that's a big problem in writing centers. We, we have to justify our existence by showing that students are actually learning something from us. And it's in the first place, it's hard to separate the influence on learning uh, that the writing center brings from what the teacher is doing in the classroom. Um, And then there is like what we really want and what we advertise in our, in our brochures or, in our proposals is that we're looking at students' development over time. And that's something that you can't really, of course, tell with just one conference. So one way of of possibly looking at this is longitudinal studies um, with the same students. There haven't been very many of those. It's it's really, really time-consuming and and just difficult to do. And you could look at the kinds of changes that um, they make, That or you could look at their first drafts, look at the changes they made based on what the tutor has said to them, based on the, the tutoring strategies that were used, and also the, the content, and trace that across six months or something like that and compare the first piece of writing to the last piece of writing according to some kind of rubric that would help you get to the quality. But just that's just so, it's so complicated. Maybe, have you figured out a way of making that less complicated, Joe? I have not figured this out. And I see, you know, in, in one sense, it's a philosophical it's it's a philosophical like question for me about wh- whether that sort of analysis is is really even warranted or valid. I'm not saying it's not interesting and useful. I'm just saying like you know we understand the writing center to be this place where tutors and students are having these conversations. Tutors are scaffolding students learning of writing and in this way of like I've said before of questioning a text of asking yourself questions about what is the context of this text what is the audience of this text what do I need to ask myself Um, and giving the students you know through instruction through pumping questions and other cognitive scaffolding uh, strategies by using motivation all the time so do we want to say that we want to measure uh, pre and post writing center interactions? So I think there's a lot of people and I'm kind of one of them. It would be great to say like, Oh, okay. Can we measure, you know, what the changes are? And, but I mean, it would be no surprise to say like that. Oh yeah. This particular paper is better after a writing center interaction. I mean, whatever rubric or measure you use, it's it's, it's likely going to be better um, unless the tutor somehow completely misdirected them about, about the genre and or whatever. But 
you know, it, it's better to think about it longitudinally, like, but it, there's just so many confounding factors. Isabel mentioned one, like the teacher, there's confounding factors over, you know, students are writing uh, longitudinally across time. They, you try to get a set of participants, they're writing different genres. Um, so, you know, how are you going to deal with the fact that they're working on different assignments? It's not impossible. It's just it's just very, very difficult to, to do, to run something large scale like that. Um, and, you know, I've, 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 I've been part of this NSF. I'm on this advisory board for this NSF project that, and they're looking at, you know, differences pre and post and they're training tutors in the, in the genre as particular STEM genres. And they're seeing, you know, improvements, results, um, uh, more effective writing based on a whole rubric. Um, but I, but I'm not sure that that that's valid. That's useful. But all I'm saying is, I don't think that's all writing centers are doing, or that's necessarily the way that they need to be held accountable for their existence. I think those conversations about writing, about questioning. Uh, texts are in themselves valid. Um, and we're, we should be more concerned about that process than, you know, p- particular texts and does, has it improved. Um, maybe it sounds like a cop-out, <laughs> but if we just get behind the idea that these sorts of conversations about writing are valuable in themselves, then we won't be so concerned, perhaps, maybe this is naive, with individual texts like an A and B test, you know. Um, it's, but, you know, probably people would disagree with me. I don't, I'm not sure. I just think that I, I've spent a long time thinking about how to measure revision, um, how to measure the differences in quality across like A and B tests and I don't know. The more I think about it, maybe I'm just getting old. The more I think like, that's really not what works. Maybe that's not the value. I mean, it is. Oh, don't, be so, don't, don't be so fatalistic, Joe. That's, that's not the spirit. I mean, the thing that occurs to me is yeah. it is interesting clearly to have measures mm-hmm. and to be able to, you know, put numbers next to thing, things, you know, but uh, if we fell, fell back on first principles, my, my first feeling would be, the reader actually gets to decide whether or not a text is improved. So, I mean, in that case, we would be, you know, for example, if you're thinking of the STEM fields, as you mentioned there in the NFS grant uh, project and so on, well then, you know, does it get published? Does it get cited? Um, If we're thinking inside of an undergraduate context, what would be, you know, um, what was the grade it got? What are the points of feedback that would nearly clearly have to be part of the project? What are the points of feedback the professor is then given? Right, right. And, and and yeah, and I'm not trying to poo-poo that sort of evaluation. I think just coming from, uh, you know, I've been an administrator and, and having these sorts of conversations, I I feel like writing center directors are often kind of, you know, they're constantly being made to fight for the funding that they get and uh, administrators are, you know, they're so interested in assessment of of programs, and uh, you know, I I I, I want to just tell them that you know the value is in these conversations, 
you know, and there is, there's learning going on. Students are learning how to think about audience, to think about context, to think about what they need to explain more. Um, and that's the, and that's the real value of it. You know, of course, students want text to be improved, right? So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to live in a fantasy world. I guess I'm just trying to point out that, you know, being held accountable in this sort of A-B test way. I'm not saying you were saying this, Daniel. I'm just saying that I think a lot of writing centers feel this pressure. And I just think it's unfortunate that they have to try to show that there's a change from A to B or feel pressured to do that when really that's not necessarily what it's about. Well, yeah, definitely. I'll be I'll be the first to vote for uh, take the pressure off the writing centers. <laughs> Your message comes across uh, there there loud and clear. And and I want to also thank uh, both of you for a very interesting uh, talk. Thank you, Joe, and thank you, Isabel. That is uh, Joe Makowitz and Isabel Thompson, and their book Talk About Writing is out with Routledge in its second edition. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye to Joe and Isabel. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, Daniel. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.